Alex and this is the Northern Guide to Happiness. Welcome to episode six. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with the rest of the podcast team, Kath and Chris. Hi. Hello. Hello there. How's everyone been? Good. Yeah. Well, you know the sock thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so that's 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 all behind me now. <laughs> and the, the mania of sort of looking around the house for things to kind of get rid of, to li- uh, liquidise a little bit of my assets. And uh, one of the things we've been trying to get rid of is the length of hose. <laughs> Because we used to have a big long garden when we used to live in Derbyshire, so the hose had to be quite long to get down to the other end of it. Now we've got a nice oh garden hose, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you think you got hosiery? I'm with you. Are you? Oh yes, with a the sock theme. Yeah, that's word association, isn't it? <laughs> garden hose, garden hose, fine, fine. I must say that I do wear garden hose when I'm in the garden. Interesting. Okay, but anyway, anyway. Garden hose, yeah. Yeah, need this, need this hose. So I put it on this this kind of um, let's let's not use the the brand name, but it's a kind of a locally focused secondhand sales website. Well done. Uh, and I put it up for free, and I thought eleven meters of hose, it's free. Somebody's going to be interested in it to kind of do something with. And I've got loads of people come back saying, "Is this still available? Is this still available? Can I get rid of the damn thing?" That loads of people say, yeah, yeah, I'll be around tonight to get it. And then nobody does. And I'm starting to feel a little, I don't know, hurt. You feel like you're being ghosted by all these people. Yeah, 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 I do. Can I have it? I think there's something going on that I'm not aware of. But Kath, yeah, you can have you can have the hose. I'm, I'm saying it publicly on, on the internet now. So it's it's yours. I would, I would, I would love to give it a home. Thank you. Great, excellent. Alex, have you got anything done, you need to get rid of? Deal. Are we going to, yeah. <laughs> Um, this I've is, got uh, the curiosity old, creative um, uh, swap shop. <laughs> I've got an old uh, internal door in the garage that I'm trying to get rid of. If anybody wants it, okay. All right. No, no standard papers? size I can or chop it up for you. No. <laughs> I think so. I think so. As far as doors go, yeah, it's uh, mm. it was taken off last year and it's been in the garage ever since. So <laughs> need to get rid Sorry, of it. Sorry, all my um, my my door needs are all fulfilled. Thank you. Okay, no worries. Don't worry about it. What have you been up to, Kath? Yeah, let's move on. (laughs) I'm feeling incredibly guilty at the moment because I came to get ready to be a podcaster and I had to close the the window and I've had to shut out the beautiful noise of the birds singing in the garden. Mm. The things I do for you, lot. (laughs) I did the same. I just feel so guilty. Thanks, Kath. Well, that's that's what we need. Yes, it's nice and quiet. Nice and quiet. <laughs> shall we um, shall we launch into today's interview? I think so. Let's do it. Okay. So I had the very great pleasure of being able to talk to Chris Jewett, who, as well as being kind of a long fr- long time friend of mine, uh, is the chief executive for Food and Drink Northeast, which is a community interest company that stands up for local food and drink suppliers in the Northeast. And we had a lovely chat about food, about what it means about memories, uh, all sorts of other stuff. So here's Chris Stewart. This is the Northern Guide to Happiness, and you are Chris Stewart. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Yeah, what a good name be... you've got. I know, it's going to get confusing. I think this is the first, yeah. the first episode we've done where the interviewee and the interviewer have the same name. So... <laughs> I'm hoping we sound different enough so that people will be able to tell the difference. It's like a series in its own right. You think? Yeah, well, we could, just, the, just find any other Chris that you can find in the region <laughs> or any, anywhere else. Just Chris talks to Chris. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure people would tune into that. It would sort of culminate with me just talking to a different version of myself. Oh, talking to yourself, that would be quite interesting, yeah. Mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think that might be a little bit too avant-garde for, uh, for the podcasting world. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, we're, we're recording this on a Wednesday, which is, for me, notoriously difficult for getting through. Um, how, how's your Wednesday been? Notoriously difficult to get through. Oh, really? You too? <laughs> it's been a, well, it's been a busy, busy Wednesday. All right. Is that, is that meant, good? It wasn't meant to be. Well, most days are busy, but today was kind of meant to be quite flat. Right. And it didn't end up being flat. It was quite, you know, it was intense. I've done all manner of things all day. Lots of shape shifting. Are you the sort of person that likes a bit of busyness? Yeah. Well, when I'm not busy, mm. I want to be. But when I am, I kind of you know think I've always bitten off a bit too much. But oh yeah, yeah. It's trying to find the balance. But yeah, today's been it's been 
varied. That's that's the word. I've done anything from making new products and developing new products to yeah, trying to save the world and talk about sustainability and all manner of things. So it's like changing different hats all the time. Well, saving the world is good. Uh, we we had yeah. um, we had Sarah Ravenscroft on uh, last week, who's a marine um, a marine biologist, marine ecologist, mm-hmm. uh, talking about you know saving the world and saving the seas. So if you've been saving the world too. I think we've got a bit of a theme developing, which is, which is well, good. Saving the seas is quite topical in food and drink as well, remember? Well, There's exactly. There's an overlap. Nice segue. Well, she was talking about oysters, uh, which ah. was very interesting. So we might we might come on to talk about oysters. But yeah. uh, people are probably a little bit, you know, having confused them with the whole Chris Chris nonsense, um, we better we better explain who you are. So, so uh, Chris, who are you? I'm, I'm what Chris. Are you? I'm the, hey, Chris. Chris. I, I the other Chris. I haven't worked out what I am yet, but I know I'm <laughs> I'm a Chris of many Chris's. I'm Christopher to my mum, uh, you know, if I'm in trouble. Yeah. I'm not Chris to many people because I've got a nickname, which you know what you know what it is, Chris. I'm, but, um, I'm sworn to secrecy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm I'm Chris Stewart. Um, my I, at at this moment in time, my 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 world is Food and Drink Northeast. So I'm the chief exec of Food and Drink Northeast. So we it's a relatively new trade organization which i set up i always say we set it up last year but we it's kind of not true because it's been something that's been building and developing over the last three years i suppose mm-hmm. so i'd like to not think that my world revolves around food and drink but it does right okay yeah well that's it has done for many years <laughs> that that's a good thing one of the reasons that i really really wanted to get you on the show was because of because of food and drink the Obviously, we have a we have a podcast about happiness and what happiness means to people in the Northeast, and there's a real strong link, a strong connection between food and well-being. And we've explored some areas of it. Like we had um, Bill Corcoran um, on in episode 19 of the first series, uh, talking about his work with with food banks. So talking to you is a, a chance to explore um, another aspect of it um, about food and well-being. Uh, kind of thinking about where food comes from, the people that make it. Um, why food is such an important part of happiness and identity. So you're the perfect person for this, I think. So <laughs> I'm uncomfortable uh, with the perfect and the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, it's fine. Sorry, I'm setting expectations very high, but I know you already. <laughs> so Yeah. No comment. No comment. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, actually we, we should say that uh, we obviously know each other uh, and have for a while. Yeah. Um so uh do you want to tell people where, where we met? What's the what's the crack there? Well, like all good meetings, we're in the school playground when it our was. kids went to school together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned food and drink northeast there in your sort of introduction to, to who you are. Um, people listening to this may not be aware of what food and drink northeast is. So do you want to give us a bit of a portrait for for what that is? The thing that you're chief exec of. I always try to tell this story, and mm. I can go down lots of different rabbit holes about kind of what <laughs> it is. It's it's a bit like that Gorgan thing, you know, where do we come from, where are we going, stuff. I, I need to kind of tell the the pathway to where, how we got to this point in the first place, then it'll make sense to what we are. Tell us the journey. Well, so I, it's funny because I've always, be, because I work in food and drink 100% now, mm. everything that I do, whether it's work with Food and Drink Northeast or Fadney, or as I've, I work as a consultant, um, I've worked in hospitality for many years, I do work with the food bank, and I look at food politics. I'm interested in every every touch point that food has, which I'm sure I'll come out with this conversation today, Chris. Yeah. But I didn't. I was a kind of reluctant foodie, <laughs> so you know, I've got story stories that are only nostalgic now. Obviously, I look back, and uh, no, that's what nostalgia is. But you know, they, they were never really meaningful at the time. You know, and uh, things that were related to food. And mm. I remember when I first got involved in food and drink, it was kind of it was complete serendipity i was you know i was quite an arty kid so mm-hmm. you know i spent several cycles of college right <laughs> whittling away of what i thought i could be good at and what i wanted to do and it was always this sort of fine balance between i had the conscience right i always wanted to do something that would impact things positively and i had this creative butterfly mind that kind of just wanted to do that and go off in the other direction i must have spent five years of my you know late teens whittling away as to what those things were. Mm. So I spent time at art college, I studied graphic design, I studied fine art, I studied sociology. And uh, my involvement in food and drink was always just, I remember 
um, aside from a, a little bit of time as a club singer, talk about that later. Um, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure that'll be an that. interesting aside. I can tell you about that. But I I got a job as a kitchen porter. So if anybody doesn't know what a kitchen porter is, you know, it's the, it's the pot wash. So I worked in um, a well-known, can we say names of places on these sort of podcasts? You can, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I worked for, um, well, it was Bistro 21 at the time. So, you know, Cafe 21, the group, mm. um, Terry Laybourne, I got a part-time job whilst I was at our college washing dishes um, over in Durham. And it was hilarious because I didn't actually make any money because... <laughs> It it cost me so much money to get to Durham, to go to work, to get home. Like by the time I'd done any of that, it was just like a social exercise. And, and there was, it, it was a tough, tough place and tough, you know, tough environment to work in. And and I, and more than anything now, I look back, and that is probably one of the most nostalgic times that I have. You know, working in a kitchen and it's it's buzzing and it's a bit chaotic and it's crazy and it's, you know, it's all those different things. So, so, what do you remember most about that that time? I mean, that sort of working in that sort of environment. <laughs> well, the the immediate thing that I remember is people throwing pans at me or <laughs> eggs for fun or for punishment. There was no different. You couldn't differentiate between the two. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, it, 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 I I remember the heat, how small the kitchen was, the pressure. Mm. I wasn't the chef, but I could see the the pressure that they were under. And that sort of filtrated across the whole team. So I, I, I remember the smell of coming out of a kitchen after a seven-hour shift, and yes, it was like having you know you have you stay in the sea too long or in the swimming pool and your skin's kind of wrinkled up and yeah. you kind of walked out like that because you 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 had sweated for so long, <laughs> your hands nice. immersed in water for such a long time that you know you just came out like one big heap of mess at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, like it's 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 the benefit of hindsight. It's all the work ethic that came from that. As I got older, I look back, and there's actually lots of things that I learned mm-hmm. in those roles. You know, um, that I probably hadn't realised I had been taken on board at the time. So anyway, that was that was my reluctant entry into food and drink. Right, sure, making okay. no money washing pans. Yeah, and uh, I try to remember. Then I went back to college. <laughs> It's to, to kind of further whittle away at this gigantic yeah. stick of like confusion yeah, yeah. To, as to what I wanted to be when I grew up right, at the age <laughs> of 20. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, um, I'm trying to get the timeline right here. I was studying, um, I said, sociology and graphic design. And I had always, I'd always had this, and I still do, always had this fascination with, um, I love international development. I love, I love, policy i love politics things mm-hmm. that i'm interested in mm-hmm. and i'd always thought I, I i remember watching live aid and stuff like that as a child being very very young probably one mm. i would have been like seven eight years old but it, it they're, they're kind of things that i imprinted in my mind and there was all you remember back in the day now we've got like careers services and we've got things but but back then you know when we were uh, you know in our in our our 20s even our mm-hmm. late teens Lots of things didn't have names. <laughs> like, like I, I knew I wanted to do certain things. I just didn't have any idea of what that, you know, what that route looked like or how mm. to how to build any stepping stones to get there. Anyway, so I wanted to get involved in international development. I didn't know how and didn't even know what that was. And um, I think eventually I came across a. You remember VSO and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. There's an opportunity came up. Um, this is 1998 to go to Tanzania as part of a, a, a small group. Of, I think it was 11 of us went to Tanzania. And yeah, I went through the selection process and did all this stuff. And to cut a long story short, I mean, it's so typically me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted it so much. And I went through the recruitment program. I went to Derbyshire for a couple of weekends, did all this sort of, you know, the teamwork stuff, recruitment process. And came back to Newcastle, went to college on a, I think it was like a Thursday afternoon. And I I was waiting for this letter to see if I'd got a place. I remember calling home and it was my grandma at the time. She answered the phone and said, you've got a letter. You've been accepted onto, um, onto this um, onto this um, trip to Tanzania. And I was like, oh, it's my dream come true. Yeah. Uh, so I left college that day. <laughs> like when I, when I say left college, I didn't just go home. I, I walked out of college and... and I kind of never looked back. I, I went, um, 
spent six months worth of fundraising, spent three months in Africa. And that was then I really started to get interested in, well, the fair trade movement. So I come across some it was sugar uh, producers at the time and started to really like link these little dots together of, you know, how food is intrinsically connected to people. Mm. And it just, there was something chimed at me at that point. And it, you know, it, I can't claim that that had been anything that I'd been building because I hadn't. Yeah. But when I got out to Africa, something just there was a pin dropped, and there was a moment where I thought, "Hold on a minute, there's there's something that I've rel- I'm relatively interested in around food, not hospitality, but more kind of you know understanding supply chains and people and mm. and food heritage and history and all of that sort of stuff, and actually how food influences a lot of things, whether that's mm-hmm. politics and economy, or whether that is jobs and or it's innovation, or whether it's public health and obesity and 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 well-being." So that was, you know, that was quite a, a major moment for me. Um, came back from Africa, and I, and I think at that point then, I, I just thought I, I could see ways in which I could marry those interests together. And I had, um, I don't want to talk about this for too long, but I had a kind of a, a failed attempt at university. I was very, I was very proud of myself. I got a place at um, the University of East Anglia to study international development, and that was agriculture. It was all the things that I was interested in, and. There was mental health problems I had at university, so that made it very difficult. You know, mm. I, I was I was away from home. I I had a girlfriend at the time who was based in Glasgow. I was in Norwich. Sure, very very t- <laughs> very very tough. And I think I lasted nine months, and I ended up moving to Glasgow. And it was at that point, I, I think my involvement in food and drink got more consistent. So I, right. I worked in more restaurants in Glasgow, worked in some really prominent and well known places, front of house and back of house. So and. As a you know, as a bar manager, as a waiter, as all those different things. You know, I've worked in all those different positions, mm. um, and eventually, after I think I was in Glasgow for five years, I came back to Newcastle, and uh, me and my girlfriend split up. Oh. <laughs> so it was like all that time that I'd spent in Glasgow, and then came back here, and it, it was like you know. So I was kind of pondering, well, do I go back to university? That was always the plan for me to mm. go back to university, and we would all we would go from north to south. And I got a part-time job at Blackfriars, you know, Blackfriars uh, in in the city centre. And again, all those little kernels that I'd kind of been looking at, my interest in fair trade, and um, I got involved in some steering groups with the council, so trying to, I sort of push the fair trade agenda in the northeast a little bit more. So I got more involved in the sort of influencing and policy areas Mm. um, at the same time as working in a restaurant. And I just met... (laughs) I met a guy, a chef, who said, look, you know, come on, we could do this ourselves. Mm. And we could get all these concepts that we, you know, looking at food politics and, and we could put them all in one roof and prove that you can have you can start, you can can have a commercial model as a business that has a positive impact on people still. I think I was at Blackfriars for a prob- just under a year. And we said, right, okay, let's give this a go. Let's set up our own restaurant, but let's do something really disruptive and a bit different. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was disruptive and different. You know, we would talking about proper hyper local sourcing people when they talk about local sourcing of food they they still kind of they include the Lake District and Yorkshire and that we were talking about hyper local producers mm. that were within a five mile radius of where oh, we right. were serving okay. from it. Yeah. yeah so trying to really mix it up and look at northeast provenance rather than just what people then defined as local yeah so um within <laughs> we committed to a premises uh, in Gosforth, and within five months of me um, putting my notice in with Blackfriars, we launched the Open Kitchen, which was a restaurant. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we yeah, and it, and that was, I, 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 the word bootstrapping is used quite a lot in entrepreneurship <laughs> these days, but I don't think people appreciate what bootstrapping is, because <laughs> I'm talking, you know, our first night of service, the paint was still drying. I, I think there was people in the kitchen still touching things up and. So it sounds like it's it, it sounds a bit of an adventure in the scariest possible way. Um I mean a lot of people that we've had on the podcast have talked about kind of twisty career paths and not ending up where they expected they were going to be or they didn't have a kind of clear picture of where they were going. Feels like even if you didn't realize that there, there was a place that you were aiming for where I don't know you're going to be happy but the getting there was an experience. Yeah, uh, it's I'm I'm trying my best not to be abstract, but it's kind of like (laughs) I, what I said earlier about 
always having a sense of direction of knowing where I wanted to get. That's how I was never concerned with leaving uni or leaving college. I, I always knew that. And it, and it was helpful that I had a had helpful parents like that. My mum was always very supportive in that. She would say, try your best at whatever you do. Mm. But fundamentally, if you're not happy, don't do it. Don't yeah. don't cheat yourself and don't cheat the people that you're working with. So I've always held that. I still hold that principle today, you know, and, mm. and that can be perceived, you know, for a for a forty something man can be perceived as quite reckless, but I still, <laughs> I still have that, you know. I still have. I, I've got the balance of retaining the work ethic that I built up working in kitchens, and you know, so I'll do the graft. I'm happy to do that, but mm-hmm. if I'm letting people down and I'm not, you know, one hundred percent believing what I do, then I tend to move on. So I always, from a very early age, and and still feel this way now, have a have this sort of destination. Mm. I can't ever put a name to it, and this is always the challenge, you know. It's, it, it hasn't got a title. It hasn't got a clear picture. I just, it's a, I suppose, and what ties in next with this podcast, I suppose, it's a feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> and a sense of where I know I'm heading with this work. Um, and that is sometimes very hard to, hard to communicate because the work of Food and Drink Northeast, I mean, moving on to that, I, I um, so from from the open kitchen time, and going back to that point of me all saying that I'm whittling away at this big log. The open kitchen was very successful. You know, we were we were open for five years. Um it was a very, very small restaurant. Mm. It was a twenty two seater restaurant on the top floor of an old Art Deco squash club. <laughs> so it you know it was like a niche within a niche within a niche. <laughs> and we we took on our premises and then we 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 paid huge attention to detail in terms of what we did. How we work with suppliers, how we found new suppliers. I'm not. I'm not going to lay claim that we kind of incubated lots of new brands, but we were. We were very definitely the first people to be working with people like Divine Chocolate, and at the time there was a cause-related water called Bailu, which was a was a charitable water. Mm-hmm. Um, that was our table water. So if you booked a table at the restaurant, you got that water still a sparkling, whether you liked it or not. It was all costed in to you know into the experience of the restaurant mm-hmm. and i felt we were doing things that were way ahead of our time then um we got in the michelin guide in the first year of us opening and you know it was challenging you know it was hard work hard work and you'll hear that story now from anybody in hospitality you know mm-hmm. no it's there's a lot of smoke and mirrors so no matter how successful you are or how many stars you get or it's still the margins of success are still tiny yeah so you know, making that work is hard, um, and we were in a in a space that was challenging. But anyway, my 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 interest at that time, as each passing year went by with the open kitchen, was really peeling back the layers of all the stories in our supply chain, and I, it's all it's always what really 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 interested me, and it still does to this day, um, and it's why I love provenance stories around food producers. Mm. Um, but we wanted to not just do kind of there's things that you can do that are easy, right? And food sourcing, you can you can find local milk or local eggs, but you, sometimes what local means to one person can mean something completely different to another. So, like, I've always had this argument, there's a big difference between a local business and a local producer. Okay. So a local business selling eggs from all over the world is a different thing to a local producer selling eggs from your backyard. Yeah. So we, we took, paid huge attention to detail. We wanted to to try and make a tangible connection between the consumer and the and the producer. We brought in producers from overseas. We had um, cocoa producers from Ghana came to the restaurant uh, and did talk-ins with, with, with the customers. And um, But at the same time, we still sat at a level where we were, I don't, I don't like to use the word high-end, but we, we, we weren't a cheap restaurant mm. because we were trying to prove that you could still, you could, you could show that ethical trading could be mainstream. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we, we didn't want to, I also remember Tradecraft had a product called Campaign Coffee and it made lots of money, but it was awful. We always, <laughs> but we, we wanted to flip that on its head and say, we are 100% ethical as a business, but actually that's just the DNA of the business. You, mm-hmm. and we want you to come here because what we do is great. Yeah. And, you know, we try to get that right. So over the course of five years, my interest got more and more and more um, aligned to understanding producers, the stories in the supply chains that went into the food that we sourced, which eventually took me to Tradecraft. Mm-hmm. So um, if anybody doesn't know who Tradecraft is, I know you do, Chris, and Tradecraft were 
like the leading fair trade organisation in the in the not just the northeast but in in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the thing which kind of sparked, or that was the inspiration for um, kind of where where you eventually decided to to, to journey on to, and it's it's kind of culminated in in food and drink northeast. Um, so, so give us a bit of a picture as to kind of what what it is that you're trying to do with food and drink northeast. What's what's your purpose? Well, with food and drink northeast, it it. It's a difficult one because I, I, I don't think other organisations have done it before. I think we've we've seen organisations in the past that have done a great job at being macro level representation of, mm-hmm. of the sector. So they might work with the big companies or we've seen other organisations work in the polar opposite area of being just absolute grassroots organisations. And we, I think when I when I set off on this path, we I was quite keen to say, well, um, if this is going to work, we have we have to be able to position something that is inclusive and mm-hmm. and builds a sense of community. And, it, and it'll make sense if I, I I'm not I'm not going to rant on about it, Chris, but it will make sense that the DIT Go pathway it. to this point. Yeah, because I I was with I was with DIT for eight years, so that's a Department of International Trade, and my my remit was to work um, wholly on food and drink in the northeast, and that was to internationalise brands. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, like every every government across the world, they've got export targets and 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 the like. And I I started DIT um, as a food and drink specialist and was meant to look after all companies. Now, you know, that's quite a broad task in the northeast, and for mm. lots of different reasons. Um, for target target reasons, so in terms of how government works and how it engages with business, um, would would naturally point me in the direction of certain businesses to work with, but I just wasn't in my nature. Yeah. You know, my, my, one of our directors of Fadden, always says about, he has an analogy about, you know, you have to kind of water all the plants in the garden because you don't know which ones, you can't place a bet on which ones are going to grow. So you have to tend to them all. Mm-hmm. And I always took that, took that view. So I'd be working with companies of, <sighs> some companies that wouldn't have been trading for longer than two weeks. Mm. And they come to me and and start talking to me. And if I'd if I'd followed the kind of rule book, I would have just signposted them elsewhere to another business support organisation. But I was never comfortable doing that. Um, you know, I'd built up a lot of expertise myself in food and drink, and I always felt I could help people. And and I suppose I always felt as well that the help that I could provide them might take them a step closer to being export ready in two years, three years, five years, or whatever was appropriate to them. Mm-hmm. So I used to just automatically, it was just in my nature to help them anyway. So I would do stuff that was way outside of my remit and beyond what I what I should have been doing in my day job to kind of providing a service where I felt there was a gap. Mm-hmm. And there'd been other organisations, namely two organisations in the past in the Northeast that just hadn't, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't quite worked. Yep. Some historically that had been kind of farmer-led organisations, other ones that were marketing and tourism led but there'd been none that were this sort of expansive let's look at the whole picture let's look Mm. at what trade means to the northeast let's look at what 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 does community mean and what is the definition of community are we talking about the business community are we talking about how the people um connect with food in the region are we talking about you know community at large um sustainability and advocacy Mm. and all those different things they're they're what we call our four pillars right so Fadney was kind of born out of my frustration of the gaps that I was finding. And you have to remember that was juxtaposed against all these other regions doing really well. So mm. if you, I would often go to meetings in London where you would listen to Yorkshire and Humber or the Northwest or the Southwest. And there was this region, you know, we understand our regional food identity. We know who we are. We know what we are. We know what we produce, Yorkshire puddings and, you know, you know Cornish pasties and, and everything's great. And I, I just couldn't. Maybe it was a, I don't know if it was a blind spot a little bit in a sense that because I knew our stories here in the Northeast, I felt like everybody else did. Yeah. And I remember think people just didn't have an awareness of what the Northeast food and drink story was or who the brands were or just how entrepreneurial we were as a region. So so what what is it that um, the food and drink of... The North region, in particular, the Northeast region, in particular, what does what, what does it tell the world about about us? Ah, about these communities. 
I suppose, you know, I mean, that's subjective, but it tells a lot. It, it, it's a lot about our, our entrepreneurialism, our, you know, our um, work ethic and our attitude to, to grafting and mm. our resilience as a region, our ability to, you know, people use the word resilience and, and pivoting now, but the Northeast's done nothing but that for decades. And, you know, it's not a new thing just because of COVID or because of Brexit. Um, we are very good at, at, at kind of adapting to the times. I wanted to, I think food and drink proves our industriousness and our creativity. And, but more than that, it, it, it kind of, it, it's our regional accent. And there's there's lots of things that I, I get quite evocative about. You know, I write a blog and I, I talk a lot about my own food memories, which are, like anybody, they're subjective. Could, you know, my food memories are no different to somebody sharing a bag of Skittles on the back of a bus, you know, get into <laughs> all the bits of context, isn't it? Yeah, but totally. But I've always argued there's no difference between a Savaloy dip and a bowl of spag bowl, you know. It's about context and narrative and how those things have been positioned, you know, by by people and how, how important people feel they are. And I think Food and Drink Northeast, for me, was born out of that frustration of the lack of support and the lack of strategic direction, but also that it was just never perceived as being important enough mm. for the authorities to to um, to invest in. You know, and you've only got to look at things like, you know, the, the fishing industry here, and there's something, the storytelling and the... The, the the food heritage and the personal stories of people involved in that industry are just they're so rich and so deep mm. uh, that I when we started telling those stories through Grub I couldn't understand why they hadn't been told before. I'll ask about Grub in a second actually because I'll be spending most of my day watching little bits of it and it'll be good to for like people listening to this to kind of catch up on it as well. But uh, you mentioned the fishing industry obviously being kind of a real key part of. Um, food heritage within the Northeast. Um, and I'm sure people listening to this will, will have things that they associate with the Northeast region and food, but it, it, what is there out there that you think would surprise people about what's what's currently going on? You know, who's, who's producing food and drink that, you know, perhaps people wouldn't expect from, uh, from the Northeast? Well, it, there's so much, Chris. I mean, there's stuff that I tell people about the past that they hadn't realized that shocks them. And I've done lots of other sessions like this where I roll them out and people are like, what? I yeah. had no idea that was from the Northeast. And you're like, yeah, it was from the Northeast. And I look at the past, I look at things like, um, how you got to remember, brown ale was one of the biggest exports from the UK for decades and continues to, I mean, th there's politics there, obviously. It's no longer produced here. I'm talking about brand legacy and heritage here in terms of what that's done in terms of how people from outside of the Northeast, whether that be nationally or that be internationally, it, it, it shapes a perception. And people look at the Northeast and they associate the Northeast with that brand. And you can go to New York and you can drink it on tap or you can see murals on the on the walls of the side of buildings. And that mural is of the Tyne Bridge. Now, I could talk all night, we'd do that another time, <laughs> about the politics of it being moved and how it's produced in the Netherlands now. Mm. But even even the history around brown ale has left that the vac the creative vacuum that now exists that I think has been occupied by all these emerging um, new craft beer brewers. Mm -hmm. You know, we, they wouldn't have happened if we didn't have a craft a brewing heritage. You know, we brown ale was a it was a kind of a gateway to something else. Brown ale was my was my first pint. I remember it was my first pint ever. Yeah, yeah. My, I think it was my. Oh, it might be in Scotch for me actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where. And I, th I thought this would happen talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> I have a memory of going to, um, I, I remember a couple of times, my mum's going to kill me for this, right? But towards Christmas time, you know, every couple of years, Fenix window, right? Mm. Now, if you had parents that worked weekends or it was heaving to try and get into Newcastle, you, or your parents didn't drive or whatever, at the weekend, I remember this one particular week uh, where I must have been about, Eight or nine. Yeah. And my mum kept me off school uh, to take me to Newcastle, right, <laughs> to go and see the Phoenix window when none of the crowds were there. And it, it, why that's really powerful to me, and I, I remember the same as going to a football match, and I'm not a Newcastle fan, as you know, but I've been <laughs> Newcastle games. Yeah. Um, and the smell of hops. I mean, I don't, oh, that, that'll pre exist your time in the Northeast, right? But it, 
it was so it it, it defined the city centre. I grew up in Edinburgh, not far away from Fountain Bridge, uh, which is ah, where right, the okay. big Scottish and Newcastle uh, breweries were up up there. So yeah, that yeah. that smell that, that kind of floated over from Murrayfield was you know really evocative, like Weetabix everywhere. Oh yeah, grown <laughs> yeah. up Weetabix smell, yeah. Yeah, it was just it was just so pungent, and it, it leaves a kind of a thumbprint on your mind. Yeah. Um, but there's brown ale. There's things like the B-roll book that I write about in my blog because people see that as like an iconic national classic. Yeah. And B-roll, it, it it was from Gateshead. You know. Is that right? Lucasaid. Lucasaid yeah. was invite as Thomas Beecham and invented in Gateshead. It was bought by obviously you know Glaxo Smith Klein, and it it just they're these sort of brands that you can't, if you don't do the legwork and you don't do the the, the research, you'd not realise that the, yeah. the innovation points back here. So I I get really excited, and I I suppose my role within Fadney is to be very broad minded about how I perceive the sector. Mm. The foodie in me gets really excited by who we are from a um, from a produce perspective. So mm. I love I love the fishing heritage that we have. I'm going to be honest with you. Apart from my granda eating langoustines from a from a you know from a newspaper, or shoving cod's row into his mouth on a Sunday afternoon or something <laughs> like that, I knew nothing about the fishing industry until about ten years ago here. Mm-hmm. And apart from the fact that I knew no shields existed, and we went there now and again, and that you could buy langoustines by the pound in a in a food arcade in the in the town centre. But as I, you know, as as times passed, and you, I speak to fishermen, I speak to people in the fishing industry, and we have some of the best, well, certainly shellfish, and you know, in the UK, a lot of it is taken to Scotland and and to Wales and exported as yeah. as, uh, as Scottish produce. It's contentious. Eh? This is the thing that Zara uh, was talking about last week about oysters and and trying yeah. to sort of revitalise the um, the oyster beds from around here because it was you know it was a staple staple dish. Um, yeah, and you know that's that took me that took me back finding that out. Yeah, well it does, but it's it's how we would we did something with um, I, I forgive if I can't remember the name. I have to edit this out, but it's it's a Katrina Porteous, the the writer. Uh, there's a there's a um, she's from Scotland originally, but she grew up in the northeast in Northumberland, mm-hmm. and she is a writer for Blood Axe books. Um, and we did something very naughty, but you won't mind me mentioning this because we because <laughs> it's. It's worked in everybody's favour now, and it's formed actually a really great collaboration on our grub work. Mm-hmm. Um, we 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 did a little piece of work. Everything we do, right, is is kind of it's like a design sprint. We just do it, mm. and if it breaks, we kind of try and fix it, or we just push it aside and start something different. And we were doing all of these short films around the fishing industry. And we were like, well, we're doing lots of talking about the northeast, about the coast, mm. going up from North Shields up to Northumberland, and. What can we do to kind of be a bit more inclusive? You know, we've got stuff going on in Hartlepool and over that side of the region. Uh, so we said, well, we just need to talk about the industry more kind of geographically expansive and not just talk about the North Shields fishing industry. And uh, we came we came across this poem, and I, I will I will send you an exclusive link because we haven't released Ooh. it yet. Ooh. Um, but this poem is called Plenty Lang a Winter. Yeah. And... It, it was written by Katrina Porteous, and it was just very, very emotional to, okay. to listen to it. And we've we've got um, you remember John Grundy from yeah. Grundy's Ways from the mm-hmm. TV. John, we got John to narrate it mm-hmm. over the top of our film. So it's a piece of work. Just looking at it's looking at sort of seascapes in the northeast with this with this poem recited over the top of it, because you know we were trying to say that this heritage story runs far deeper than just talking about fishing quarters and politics, it goes right back generations and generations to when, you know, you could catch salmon on the Tyne. Mm. And, you know, there was real entrenched stories. And it took us down all these different paths around, um, I don't know how a lot of our language in the Northeast has been informed by the fishing industry. Mm. You know, my dad used to use the word Gansey all the time for a jumper. Now a Gansey. And, you know, um, they're trendy now, right? Fisherman's jumpers are twi- oh yeah yeah the pattern yeah yeah oh yeah patterns on each do you know this story no I don't know this story but I know the I know the patterns you're talking about so yeah all right so the patterns on each fisherman's jumper right the reason that they're all different is because each pattern ties a fisherman to the port 
and if they were found overboard and drowned, oh, they could right. they could register the death according to that fisherman being from North Shields oh, or from goodness. Amble or yeah, right. And yeah, uh, and then there's the um, there's the links with so more language. You heard the term kip in the northeast. I think mm. it's in Scotland as well. Eh? Oh yeah, have a kip. I'm going to go for a kip. Yeah. Right. So that's the kipper houses. So the herring girls of the north of North Shields. But it goes beyond that because kip is also um, a Scandinavian term. Mm. And I can't remember. I was going to make it off the top of my head there, but it's something to do with resting and home. Right. I know Hiem is home. Yeah. <laughs> but but kip has a has a, like a, a very direct connection between Scandinavian heritage and the northeast and how then that was interpreted around the, the, you call them the herring girls yeah. of, the, of, of the key. There's so many links with Scandinavia, aren't there? Yeah. Ah, huge. Yeah. I mean, huge links with Scandinavia. And it, it's one of the things that I find really exciting because I, I like to kind of, you'd like to think that we've, we've had Scandinavians here and we've had Romans. That's somewhere along the line that there is an infiltration into food culture somewhere. <laughs> there, there must be. Must be. I spend my time when I travel looking at these things and going, oh, I recognise that. <laughs> yeah, that polenta looks a little bit like peace pudding mind, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. We invented polenta. <laughs> Jody Polenta. <laughs> yeah, it is Jody Polenta. Yeah, Jody Hummus, as somebody once called it. But <laughs> so you've mentioned this grub project um, and and the videos um, which are available on the the Fadney site and are well worth a uh, are well worth a look. I mean, one thing that really struck me from watching those was for all local communities and all local businesses, the last twelve months have been extraordinarily difficult, and that's going to have hit the. Um, the hospitality sectors, the food producers, the drink drinks makers, um, particularly hard, given that we can't get out the way that you know we have in the past. Um, I just wonder, from, from what you've seen in the work that you've done, the people that you've you've worked with and you've talked to, I mean, how have you seen people in the northeast, food producers and so on, uh, people working in that sector? How have they kind of adapted? How have they coped? really hard Chris I think mm. I think some of them have I don't really want to use the word coped because some of them have just evolved and because they have that natural it's it's built into their business and their mentality and I think mm. if I'd known them as entrepreneurs five years ago I could have told you which ones would be resilient in, right. in, in any crisis and there's the ones that have found it very difficult you have to you have to remember in in food and drink it is like a, it's like a game of Jenga um, in what way? Well, if you, if you think of if you think of the top blocks, um, in fact, no, it's like an inverted game of Jenga. Oh my goodness! So right. if, you, if you think <laughs> right, if you think the bottom pieces are hospitality, yeah, right, and the top pieces of the supply chain and layers are all the food producers and the people that provide products and services in hospitality. Mm-hmm. You only need to start removing some of those hospitality blocks from the bottom, and for the whole lot to start to yeah. to collapse, because a lot of them are reliant upon, especially. I, I don't like the word niche, but artisan artisan producers who make very very speciality things, mm. or charcuterie or cheesemakers and people who, whose I suppose volume efficiency comes from selling into hospitality, and then everything else do, they do to directly to consumer mm. is like. It's it's bonus sales. You also have to remember. I mean, even before any crisis, I always remember the term being used in hospitality. You're, you're only two two poor services away from bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So you know that was a reality anyway. You know, like uh, the, uh, I suppose mar- profit margin and and commercial models within hospitality are so tight, mm-hmm. which we touched upon earlier. You know, when I had my restaurant, that like no business can really afford a poor week. Mm. So I think when COVID came, none of them, like none of them were ready. Not, hospitality, I think, got hit the hardest. Yeah, I think that there was always a need for produce. And we have to remember, you know, like, so produce is, it's perishable and it's edible and it goes, you know, it goes in people's tummies either way. And <laughs> as long as they can find the correct route to market, then people are still want, are going to want to consume that. Mm. And it was helped by the fact that if you look at how, sort of big supply chain collapsed during the first few weeks of lockdown. That's one without sounding cynical, it was kind of one of those moments where I suppose local became a real alternative to people. 
So, so flour, for instance, was one of them. If you remember, mm. um, I remember making this awful, awful assumption that I'm, I must be like the only person that bakes in Foden. <laughs> and I thought, right, I'm going to pop out and get some flour. Nobody else would have bought any flour today. There's no flour anywhere, you know, because everybody was buying flour because they're yeah. home baking. Yeah. So there's a real flour shortage. And then we have flour. We have flour millers in the northeast. We have flour spelt growers in Sedgefield and in Northumberland who do products that they do in bulk for hospitality and into retail. Mm-hmm. They're, they're producers that nobody knows about. You know, they're not they're not mainstream producers. Um, like Heatherslow Mill and uh, places like that. Heatherslow, Gilchester's, yeah. Crags. Uh, you'll see if you go on our Grub stories, there's a, there's a story about Crags and Co. and about how they pivoted because a lot of their work goes into hospitality and mm. they saw... Well, they saw a decline in their sales, then they saw a huge uplift in terms of um, direct-to-consumer. So, like, whenever I get asked these questions, certainly by, you know, when we're talking to people like the LEP around economy, and it's quite hard to generalise because some people have absolutely benefited mm. during... Le- LEP being the COVID. local enterprise partnership. Local, yeah, absolutely, okay. yeah. So, so we'll talk to them about the kind of macro figures and what's going on in the industry and... Um, Looking at gross value and how the well how the sector's performing, mm. and we'll talk about um, employment figures, how many people have been made unemployed because of COVID. And we did a, I remember we we were only four weeks into into lockdown, and and I was just determined. I, I said, look, we need to we need to be proactive, and at least if we do something, uh, and we don't get it right, we'll be forgiven for being proactive rather than trying to. Mm to work out what the best thing is to do, but losing too much time. Because you have to remember, for some producers, they've got they've slaughtered animals and they've they've butchered stock and they've they've got perishable goods that they need to find a market for. So really a week to them is like a month to a normal trader. So we said, well, we can wait for local authorities to come out and that was before furlough and before the um other schemes to help businesses. Um so we went and we did a consultation with the sector and I think we got about 170 responses about what the impact of COVID and lockdown mm-hmm. was. It was when we did the Coping in a Crisis series on Grub. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it, we were getting answers from, you know, really, really small businesses from a kitchen table right up to Greg's mm-hmm. who were all saying the same thing and give us this really bleak outlook about what was going to happen. And those things did happen, you know, especially in sort of, uh, like the industrial food and drink sector, yeah. But the but then there was winners, you know. People, so you, you saw that there's been a real genuine conversion towards people buying local. Because uh, I was always concerned that there would be a fatigue about it, and mm. uh, and you know you get people that it's like you know people give money to charity, you know they'll give two pound in a in a tenner, and then they've got to keep the eight quid in their pocket, you know, for what they, you know, where I'm coming from. Yeah, totally. There's, there's that. But then, what we saw is we saw this we saw this huge, huge spike um, in in people buying from local local on t- online offers like our local heroes project and Granger Market or Wild Farm and all these different people that were doing box schemes. And then there was the easing of the first lockdown, so that number kind of went like that again, straight down, right? Or just so kind of eased down. off a bit, yeah. But but the interesting thing was though, this is where, where I'm get what I'm getting at. Hmm. Uh, there was a there was definitely a behavioural shift because there was an easing off and it dif- definitely dipped, and then there was a second lockdown hmm. and it went like that again, and then Back after the again. second lockdown it dipped again. Mm-hmm. But the benchmark has gone from there to there. So, so people, th- there's been a real conversion of people that all oh, will will just stick with local now. Right. So that that is a it's definitely a net gain. Well, that's that sounds like a really good bit of good news. Um, and I mean, it's interesting hearing you talk about you know, what it's like to, to work in this industry. And obviously there's a lot of passion, uh, a lot of people that are in it because they absolutely love it. It's where they get their happiness from, but it feels like it's, you know, a lot of the time it's on a, on a bit of a knife edge. Um, and I wonder what, what it, you know, think about, you know, those of us that aren't involved in, um, in producing the food and the drink, we're involved in the, the consuming thereof. Um, what is it that, you know, we can be thinking about doing in terms of, you know, getting out there and, and re-engaging with with local projects, what would you what would you what would you say you'd like to see people doing, as restrictions hopefully ease over the next couple of months? 
I think you know. I think we've got to be realistic. You know, um, I I could do a big tub thumping kind of cold arms about what people should be doing, but mm. I I think it's a it's a two way conversation. You know, um, obviously what is being produced by producers has to be good enough for to keep people interested. And um, but if if people can be loyal to brands, big multinational brands, and they can be loyal to local brands as well, mm. and it, it's it's understanding how we can create that. Well, I suppose take it from a conversation to a connection. I think that's what I love about the work that I do on food markets because, mm. uh, say, Jasmine Food Market, for instance, we see people who have developed a genuine connection with a particular trader, and every fortnight they'll come back and they'll shop from that from that person, no matter what, because they get the story, they understand that. It's not charity. They understand the hardship that that person goes through, the effort that goes into that supply chain and to getting that food in your hands. And I think it's a difficult one for me to answer this because I can get quite militant about it, especially when I talk about <laughs> fair trade. Yeah. Because there's, there's, I want people to think logically about what it means. You know, like what do, what does local mean? It means lots and lots of things. It means creating better economies for your for your own region. It, you know, it, it bolsters the economy. It creates jobs. It forges identity. It saves the planet. You know, you're looking at short supply chains. It's one of the biggest pieces of work that we're focusing on at the moment around innovation. Is um, it's to get away from greenwashing. And you know, there's a lot, a lot of things said about what people can do about you know reducing uh, carbon emissions. And but there's some very real things that people can do as well. Uh, and a lot of those answers lie in 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 sourcing local. And when I say sourcing local, I I, I want to get away from the hashtag. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a real thing. It, it's not. It, it's it's not like I bought a bag of flour this month, and you know, I'm a, I'm an advocate of local produce. But there, there's something to be said um, in a world where mainstream retail is all about bog offs and discounts, buy one get one free, and it's a very it's a very British or Americanized thing that you know, in terms of a value perception, how mm. we how we perceive value in the in the UK. And in the states, it's all about it's it's about um, value for money, as in quantity. Mm. What I got for the pound, whereas you go to places in Europe, it's about quality. It's like you know, I got this for my money, and it's top quality. So I, and certainly in my my daily life, it's it's kind of buy buy less but buy better, mm. you know, and pay more. Yeah, that there's a there's a political reality about what that means to lots of people who can't afford that, um, and and that's. That, that that's another podcast because there's, yeah. there's, there's dynamics in that as well that yeah. are changeable. Mm. They're not, you know, that some of it is more simple than people think because a lot of the the market dynamics and the cost of food is, you know, it's not simple. Nope. Food could be cheaper for people. Local food could be cheaper for people, but if it was bought more frequently and it was more accessible. This this has been really really interesting, Chris. We probably might <laughs> start to to bring things to a close, but I can't I can't. There's a few questions that I have to ask you, um, oh. because you know it, this is about happiness in particular, and, and, and I'm interested in your happiness. Um, what? Because we've all got like favorite foods, but what would you say was your kind of your your the thing that was the food that's or the drink that brings you the most happiness, and you can be as trashy as you like with it. Right. So I could give you the sort of. Yeah, the safe answer, and then I can give you the actual <laughs> real answer. Yeah, so I, I am a foodie, right? I'll eat anything. I've got really fond memories of eating octopus in Greece and yeah. and offal, and and I've got no, I've got no filter. I'll eat, <laughs> I'll eat I've got a great story about getting food poisoning with jellyfish in Thailand, but we'll save that for another time. Oh, as well. okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I've got no, I've, yeah, it's no holds barred, and I've got great food memories. But I've got I've got two things that always pull me back. Yeah. To a point. Uh, one of them is well, we all know Primula cheese. So, so Primula cheese, it's made on Team Valley. It's squeezy cheese, something that you want to hear old Jodies say. See, I had no idea uh, it was made on the Team Valley. <laughs> made on the Team Valley, Primula, and I I remember watching Jason and the Argonauts when I was about seven years old. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just so funny. Because my memory is, um, and I, I can taste it now. Actually, thinking about it, mm. it's burnt toast, <laughs> right? Burnt toast, buttered, with Primula cheese on it, right? And 
I love it. It's like yeah. comfort food. Yeah. Absolute comfort food. And it just takes me somewhere. It's mm. like one of those memories, you know. It's like when I hear Rio by Duran Duran. I, <laughs> I can like I can smell my house that I lived in at the time. I don't know why. Um but it's it's something that takes me back to that time. It's like a breadcrumb trail to a point. And then the other one, again, and it was the name of my blog for years, is is it's my mum's recipe called Black Soup. Okay. Black it's as simple as you could imagine. And but it's a bit like me getting involved with hospitality. I was resistant to it. I remember tipping a bowl of it on my head in my teens <laughs> out of like absolute, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to have this. I'm not eating it. But it's just, it's it's uh, like waxy potatoes, right? Okay. Minced beef, grated carrots. All right. Onion, right? Yeah. Beef stock, oxo or Compton's or gravy, right? right? Like yep. a soup. Make it like a stock. Uh-huh. It's boiled with Worcestershire sauce and it's my mum's black soup and that with a ham and peas pudding sandwich on the side it keeps kind you of going like, for a week that's a, like oh it does but the thing is though it's like you know you get the recipe right it's it's great but it's it's one of those things that it, it is it is my fundamental food memory right it was, it was my mum's go-to. It still is my mum's go-to thing. My mum, right, before we wrap up, yeah. and again, she'll kill me, so don't edit this because I, <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Um, so my mum, who is very happily recovered from COVID now, she got COVID um, just after Christmas and was very poorly. Right. And <laughs> she was like, as she started to recover, she struck, she couldn't eat anything. And, um, you know, my mum was a carer and she was at home, she lived, lives alone. She was at home uh, finding just things very difficult. It was difficult for us because we couldn't get in to help her. Mm. And I remember a couple of weeks as she kind of started to pull pull out of it and get a little bit better, but was still a bit teetering a bit and she couldn't eat well. And she, <laughs> she said to me, hey, son, I've I've even made a pan of black soup and I got a Savaloy dip this morning and I still couldn't <laughs> eat them either. And I thought that is like, it's like a Geordie response to COVID, <laughs> right? as if like these these medicinal properties of these two kind of you know <laughs> iconic points of northeast history and food food culture, Savoy dip, and a bowl of black soup. I thought that would have mended me from COVID, but even that didn't work. Jo- Geordie homeopathy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Geordieopathy, yeah. There we go. <laughs> oh, we brilliant. can get in trouble for that. Actually, <laughs> somebody's going to take that on and start doing it. Some quack somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, awesome. That's oh. tough stuff. Chris, before we finish, um, I mean, this is this is the this is the Northern Guide to Happiness, and we always like to kind of finish on a bit of a kind of a advice thing, or you know, take your perspective on life. And you know, it's it's not all. Obviously, your your life is not all related to to, to food and drink. But what would you say is kind of the key to happiness or what advice would you give people oh chris i i gotta be honest i i find that difficult because i i I roll with it every day okay and sometimes i find happiness easier to come by than other days sure but i have i have little i have little mantras in my head that i've always kind of carried around with me and kind of we we could like I said we could do, go down the kind of hashtag route and say life is life is great and all that, but it's not always great. No, life is like sometimes really really quite difficult. Um, but I I just always have this three. <laughs> it's great faith, great doubt, great effort, are the three three things that I say to myself every single day, because mm-hmm. it'll always justify the type of day I'm going to have. So some days are harder than others. Some days I really can't stand. Mm. You know, some days I embrace. And other days, I you know I, I kind of I can't wait to get past, but it's kind of I've done very well over the years. It kind of embracing transience a little bit, so nothing's permanent, and that's okay. <laughs> and you know, don't grasp, just just kind of go with the flow. I wish I could have been more profound than that, but I don't think you could have been. Actually, kind of, that was it's no grasping, no grasping. Wisdom of of the highest. Uh the highest standard I feel. <laughs> Chris um, you've given me a huge amount of your time tonight and it's been an absolute blast thank you so much um, the, thank the, you the northern guide to happiness thanks you and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon and this Chris thanks you Chris <laughs> goodbye Chris goodbye Chris
so that was fun what did you think yeah i thought that was great um the there was a few things that that really sort of stuck out for me um in particular you know the storyteller in me uh, as soon as he started talking about the importance of stories and mm. Um, recording the stories of the supply chain, you know, making making people aware of where food comes from and, and how people, how hard people work um, mm. to sort of get things uh, produced and onto our plates. I thought that was really interesting. And as soon as you started talking about, you know, the food memories as well and um, that idea of the context and narrative around food memories. And as soon as you talked about Newcastle Brown Ale, oh, yeah. I can smell it now. I, you know, <laughs> I, I was just transported back a good 20 years or so ago. And just mm-hmm. the smell of the brewery at St. James's on my way to work, I would get off at St. James's Metro. Uh, I, you know, I lived in Heaton off the metro at St James's and I was working at Discovery Museum at the time and just yeah that smell as you sort of walked past but you know as, as you were both saying as well you know that the smell just enveloped the city you could just smell mm. it wherever and I think when I first arrived I didn't realize what it was but I quickly learned what it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah I was, I was transported back when you started talking about that yeah because our, yeah. our kids aren't going to know what that smell is are they they're not going to have experience of that that you no. no they won't even know the brewery was there because there's only mm. one not very big plaque <laughs> that mm-hmm. says glue star was here um, if you're interested in finding out more about um some of the stories that they've collected it's um grub.fadne which is f-a-d-n-e dot org uh, and there's a host of stuff on there it's a it's, it's well worth your time I'll, I'll definitely be checking that out definitely Sounds good great. good he was one of those guys that sounded happy with what he was doing without actually having to say the word mm. a great deal of uh, I think you, you cornered him towards the end um, <laughs> but the rest of it was all just I am really enjoying doing what I'm doing yeah <laughs> and he made me laugh several times through through the interview but particularly when he was talking about travelling a long distance to go and work, I think he was working in Durham, yeah. and he, he worked out that it was actually work as a social exercise. Yeah. Um, on, along the lines was by the time I'd got there and got back, I'd actually spent more than I'd earned. <laughs> yeah. And I really think that must have an echo with so many people who've mm-hmm. done jobs like that. Mm-hmm. Um but his whole attitude to looking for another challenge or taking a challenge when it presented itself. And oh, by the way, I'm off to Tanzania with the VSO. And the idea that if if it didn't work, then walk away from it. Mm. If something doesn't work, it's not right for you and it's not right for the people on the other side, which I thought was very profound. Yeah. Quite courageous as well, I think. It takes a lot of, um, lot of guts to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that he made me think of was a friend of mine has an allotment in Newcastle and he grows herbs that he sells to local restaurants. And it's just this idea, it's not even a cottage enterprise, it's not as big as that. But he was talking about food sustainability and all sorts of different things. And before lockdown, I discovered a, a lovely website called Too Good To Go. Mm. And you can go and collect end-of-day food. And I haven't been able to use it for 18 months, practically, mm-hmm. because the restaurants, sadly, haven't been functioning. So I was just so enjoying listening to them, and it brought, it brought back memories of, of doing that and several other things as well. So thanks, Chris. It was, it was lovely. That's all right. Well, yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it, because I had a great time talking to him. Well... If you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then we'd love to hear from you. We love hearing your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thenorthernguidetohappiness.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at North Happiness and Instagram and Facebook at Northern Happiness. We're really glad to be back spreading more joy and happiness around the North East, thanks to funding from the National Lottery Community Fund and the Newcastle COVID Fund. So thank you so much to our funders for their support. Next time, we have Amanda Gerry, who is Lead Regeneration Officer for the Church's Conservation Trust. 
She's been working on a pretty big project in Sunderland over the last few years, restoring one of the oldest buildings in Sunderland back to its former glory, Holy Trinity Church in the historic East End of Sunderland. So you'll hear me ask her questions like this. Zoom free Fridays sound good. Have you noticed any kind of improvement to your well-being then from trying that out? Has it made a difference? And hear Amanda give answers like this. You know, I have shared diaries, so literally anybody can <laughs> can put a, a meeting in your diary. And um, I think it's like anybody, like, you know, we're all busy, but is generally... When you go from one meeting to the next, you're traveling either in your car or you're walking or you're cycling from one meeting to the next. And you give yourself a little bit of thinking time um, to digest what's just been said, maybe to action a couple of the things that you said that you would be responsible for and to get your head into where you're going next. So the no Zoom Fridays have been brilliant. Just gives me a bit of thinking time because you think about what's happened in the week think about what the next week's going to be and also to try and get through that really big meeting uh, to-do list. So yeah, definitely no Zoom Fridays. It's just the best thing ever. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Northern Guide to Happiness so far. Take care and see you all again next week for another episode. (laughs) 